On this Memorial Day of uh, 2002, I would like to uh, call your attention to a speech made by General of the Armies, Douglas MacArthur. This is one of the greatest speeches that's ever been made in the history of this country. It was originally given on the 26th of January, 1955. It was on the occasion of his 75th birthday when he went to Los Angeles to participate in ceremonies uh, for the dedication of what became known as MacArthur Park. A statue was also unveiled of General MacArthur at that time, and he made the following remarks as he acknowledged the honors given to him that day. He said, I have listened with deep emotion to these solemn proceedings, and my heart is too full for my lips to express adequately my thanks and appreciation for the extraordinary honor you do me. Even so, I understand full well that this memorial is intended to commemorate an epic rather than an individual, an armed force rather than its commander, a nation rather than its servant, an ideal rather than a personality. This but increases my pride that my name has been the one chosen as a symbol of an epic struggle and victory by millions of unnamed others. It is their heroism, their sacrifice, their success that you have honored today in so an unforgettable manner. I and the statue in this park are but the selected reminders of their grandeur. Most of them were citizen soldiers, sailors, and airmen, men from the farm, men from the city, from the schoolroom, for the college campus, men not dedicated to the profession of arms, men not primarily skilled in the art of destruction, men amazingly like those you see and meet and know each day of your lives but men animated, inspired, and ennobled by the sublime cause, the defense of their country, their native land, their their very hearthstones. The most divine of all human sentiments and impulses guided them, the spirit and willingness to sacrifice. He who dares to die to lay down his life on the altar of his nation's need is beyond doubt the noblest development of mankind. In this he comes closest to the image of his creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross that the human soul might live. These men were my comrades in arms. With me they knew the far call of the bugles at Reveille, the distant roll of drums at nightfall, the endless tramp of marching feet, the incessant whine of the sniper's bullet, the ceaseless rattle of sputtering machine guns, the ominous roar of threatening cannon, the sinister wail of air raid sirens, the deafening blast of crashing bombs, the stealthy stroke of the hidden torpedoes, the amphibious lurch over perilous waves, the dark majesty of the fighting ships, the mad den of battle lines, and the stench and all the ghastly horror and savage destruction of a stricken area of war. They suffered hunger and thirst, the broiling suns of relentless heat, the torrential rains of tropical storms, the loneliness and utter desolation of jungle trails, the bitterness of separation from those they loved and cherished. And they went on and on and on when everything within them seemed to stop and die. They grew old in youth. They burned out in searing minutes of all that life owed them, everything of their tranquil years. When I think of their patience under adversity and their courage under fire, their modesty and victory, I am filled with an emotion of admiration I cannot express. Many of them trod the tragic path of unknown fame that led to a stark white cross above a lonely grave. And from their tortured dying lips, with the dreadful gurgle of the death rattle in their throats, always came that same grasping prayer that we who are left would go on to victory. I do not know the dignity of their birth, but I do know the glory of their death. And in these troublesome times of confusion and bewilderment, Uh, and uh, international sophistication, let no man misunderstand what they did and that for which they died. These were patriots, plain and simple. They were men who fought and perchance died for one reason alone, for their country, for the United States of America. No complex philosophies of world intrigue and conspiracy dominated their thoughts. No elaboration or extravagance of propaganda dimmed their sensibilities. Just the simple fact that their country had called them. Just the devoted doctrine of Stephen Decatur when he said, My country, may she always be right, but right or wrong, my country. 
Be not deceived by strange voices heard across the land decrying this old and proven principle of patriotism. Although it has been from the beginning the main bulwark of our national strength and integrity, seductive murmurs are arising, that it is now outmoded by some more comprehensive and all-embracing philosophy, that we are provincial and immature or reactionary and stupid when we idealize our own nation, and that there is a higher destiny for us under another and more general flag that no longer when we send our sons and daughters to the battlefield should we see them through all the way to victory that we can call upon them to fight and even to die for some half-hearted and indecisive effort, that we can plunge them recklessly into war and then suddenly decide it is the wrong war or the wrong place, the wrong time, or even that we cannot call it not a war but all but some euphonious or gentler name, that we can treat our loved ones as expendable, although they are our own flesh and blood, and even in times of peace for some romantic reason they must share not as a gesture of generosity, but as a bounded duty, their national blessings and goods built from nothing to a height never before reached by man with others. Whether through neglect or not, they have not fared as well. That we, the most powerful nation in the world, have suddenly become dependent on others for our security and even our welfare. Listen not to these voices, be they from one political party or the other, be they from the high and the mighty or the lowly and the forgotten, heed them not. Visit upon them the righteous scorn born of the past sacrifices of your fighting sons and daughters. Repudiate them by word and deed in the marketplace, on the platform, from the pulpit. Those who are our friends will understand. Those who are not, we can pass them by. Be proud to be called a patriot or a nationalist or what you will if it means you love your country above all else and you will place your life, if need be, at the service of your flag. Memorial Day was originally created and set aside to remember those who gave their lives during the war between the states. It has since become a day to remember those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for this country to preserve our freedoms. At this time, we live in an era when we are faced with a certain amount of uncertainty. We're faced with the ongoing threat of another attack since September 11th can't help but watch the news and watch the uh, continuous gaggle of reporters going after people and asking them how they feel about the threat and what they think about it and how it's changed their lives. And as believers, we notice that again and again and again, people uh, have this underlying anxiety and fear. The tremendous opportunity for us as believers to demonstrate the courage that we have in our soul from Bible doctrine because we know that Jesus Christ controls history, because we know there is a future and that plan is outlined in Scripture, whether or not we are alive to see it is not really important. What is important is our testimony as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to the grace of God and to his provision of salvation and the fact that it makes a difference in the way we live on a day-to-day basis. So I think this is a time when, as believers, we can take particular uh, pride in the fact that we are believers, that we can hold our head up, heads up high, that we, it makes a difference. The doctrine in our soul changes the way we interact with life. We should be able to stand out because of the doctrine that is in our soul. Before we begin our study of the Scriptures this morning, I want to take a few moments of silent prayer. We need to... Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit. And then we will open the Word and begin to study His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this privilege and opportunity that we have in a free nation to study your word, that the very fact that we sit here assembled together where we can open your word, teach it freely, is not something to be taken for granted, but something that is a unique privilege, something that has uh, has in most countries, in most times, in in the history of the world has never been able to, to take place. It is our privilege to do this because of those who have 
fought, those who have made the ultimate sacrifice, those who have gone to war, those who have served our country, those who have earned this freedom for us. Freedom is not a right. It is not a uh, something that we are automatically given, but it is something that is bought and paid for in every generation. Father, we pray for this nation now as we face this threat of terrorism that threatens not just our freedom, not just the United States, but is an assault from the Islamic terrorists and the Islamic hordes against all that Western civilization stands for and is, above everything else, an assault on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the eternal God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. It is an assault on the very truth of Scripture itself. Father, we pray that as a nation we might have the courage, the integrity, the willingness to make the sacrifice, to do whatever is necessary in order to win this war. We pray for our leaders, for our president especially, for those who are in positions in uh, national security and intelligence agencies, for those who are involved in planning military strategy, those who are in charge of security issues for airports and other areas of, of uh, a threat. Father, we pray that you would give them wisdom to make the right decisions. Above all, Father, we know that, that the blessing in a nation is ultimately related to two things, your plan for Israel and the role of the believer. Father, we pray that as believers we might be willing to take a stand for what is the truth, that we might be willing to step up to the plate of the challenge of the spiritual life. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to stand fast on your word and to make your word the highest priority in our life, that we might be a solid testimony to your grace and to the work of salvation performed by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our own life and our own thinking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we continue our study of one of the most significant passages in Scripture. The reason this is such an important passage is because it helps us to understand the nature of man and the nature of learning, especially the nature of learning as a believer. It's a great passage because it teaches us the principle that God has provided a great system of learning truth, a great system of learning His Word that is not based on human IQ, not based on human education, not based on, on uh, social status, not based on uh, background, but is based on a, only the only true system of equality that has ever existed in human history, and that is the priesthood of the church-age believer. So that God has given us a, a basis, a system of knowledge based on the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit based on the realities of regeneration that are true for every believer. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. I've had, I've had uh, people that I know who have come out of backgrounds where they have just about fried all their brain cells through drugs when they were in their uh, formative years, or they dropped out of school when they were in junior high or high school, never learned very much in terms of an official academic education. And yet, once they became a believer, and as a result of their positive volition, they were enabled to uh, master incredible amounts of doctrine. Because, you see, ultimately it's not based on those human factors. It's based on your reliance upon God the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. And that is means that it's true for every believer, so no one has the right to ever say, well, you know, I just don't understand it. It's too difficult. Or, you know, the complaint that uh, I often hear is, well, that's just too academic or too, you use uh, words that I don't understand. Well, uh, it's a great opportunity to expand your vocabulary and to learn, and anyone can do this. 
And it's uh, don't use those excuses because that uh, are nothing more than a rationalization for negative volition. I, uh, I have some good friends down in Houston that have um, uh, one in particular that I know of. Just you would never think that this guy uh, would be that bright. And yet, because of the years that he has spent listening to doctrine, and he has a, a grasp of the truth of God's Word that far surpasses the um, knowledge of many seminary-trained men. So uh, anybody can do it. It's just a matter of your, your decision to make doctrine the highest priority in your life and, and to be in class and to sit there and listen to tapes and go over them uh, again and again. And, and uh, you know, in some churches, some situations where doctrine is taught, pastors get the idea that, well, we're going to have Bible class every night. I don't know how some pastors do that. I certainly wasn't taught a method of study that would allow me to teach five or six times a week. Uh, I spent a lot of time in, in the study seeking, seeking out and searching out and thinking through uh, passages to make sure that when I stand in the pulpit and teach that something is the Word of God, that I can have a fair degree of confidence that I've spent the time studying it out. And uh, when you try to get in the pulpit five or six times a week, and teach the Word, often quality suffers. And I've been told by people, in fact, I was talking with uh, someone yesterday that said that, well, normally he listens to the tapes three or four times before he can go on to the next one. And I sort of design it that way. So uh, that way you don't have to feel like you have to be in class five nights a week, but you can get the tapes and go over them again and again. And in that repetition, you will... Always learn something more. There will be something you will pick up each time you go through the tape that you perhaps missed before. And that is part of my method. That is part of how I teach and why I teach the way I teach and why I understand the teaching to be done this way is based on principles extracted from this particular passage. You see, teaching, whether it's teaching down at the uh, public school or teaching at the university or teaching in a church presupposes a certain understanding about the function of the soul, the function of the brain, the function of the mind, and how learning takes place. So ultimately it is based on a, a certain assumptions about the nature of a human being, what makes up, what makes a person a person. If you have a, a Darwinian materialistic understanding of the brain and the mind, then you're going to have a view of teaching and learning that is materialistic based and is different from that of Scripture. If you have a biblical viewpoint, you're going to understand that there are certain realities about er that are true for every individual, and one of those is the sin nature. And the sin nature affects every aspect of our soul. It affects our mentality so that those little kids that you teach in school or your own little kid that you are raising at home is a little sin nature wrapped in flesh, and part of your job is to teach them self-control and self-discipline of those sinful desires and those sinful inclinations. You also have to realize that because of sin uh, and their, their own sin nature and the trends of their own sin nature and their own particular areas of weakness that is going to have an impact on the way they are able to concentrate, study, learn truth. And as a parent especially, and you, your parents, those of you who are adults, you always wondered why your, uh, your parents seem to know you so well. And that's because they watch you develop in those first five or six formative years of your life. And you were displaying all of the trends of your sin nature at that time long before you perceived them yourself. And so they know you pretty well, and a wise parent is going to evaluate their children in light of their sin nature. And you're going to think about your children in terms of their areas of strength and their areas of weakness because part of your role as a parent is to teach and train them. And so you have to understand those various dynamics. And that is true for God's Word and the study of God's Word and the learning of spiritual truth as well. But God has given us this fantastic system of learning that is based not on our own abilities, not on our own natural talents, not on our own education, not that these are irrelevant, but that they are not a limiting factor. The real issue is not education, it's not IQ, it's not intelligence, 
It is the relationship to God the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is outlining in the second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 9. But we will back up and pick up a little context, starting in verse 6. Now, the last time we covered this, which was two weeks ago because John Nimola was here on, uh, last Sunday morning, so we'll take a few minutes to back up and do a little review. The contrast here, as it is through this entire section from the beginning of the epistle down through down into chapter 4, is the contrast between human viewpoint thinking and divine viewpoint thinking. That divine viewpoint thinking makes a radical difference in a person's life. And that as believers, we are not simply involved in learning how to behave differently. That, after all, is rather superficial. But we are to learn to think differently. We're not only to learn to think differently in terms of the content of our thought, but we are to learn to think differently in terms of the uh, way, the methodology, the way in which we approach thinking. The world approaches thinking on the basis of, of three systems that we have studied in the past, either rationalism, which puts uh, human thought at the centerpiece of, of uh, all truth, that it becomes the ultimate criteria for all truth, or empiricism, which puts uh, experience or sense data at the, as the cornerstone of all knowledge, or mysticism, which puts the emphasis on human uh, intuition. But the Scripture says that even though man can learn many things and many true things on the basis of the use of his reason and on the basis of, of empiricism and perhaps even on the basis of uh, uh, intuition, it is limited truth. We might put write it out with a small t that there are, there are limitations to man because of finite reason and finite experience that uh, limit what we can do and what we can con- conclude. Be- beyond a certain point, we have to rely upon someone else giving us information. In fact, that's how we began to learn. When you were uh, a year and a half old, two years old, and your parents, you began to acquire, began to speak and acquire a little vocabulary, your parents began to teach you, you went to school, or somebody gave you the alphabet and said, these are the letters of the alphabet, and you accepted that by faith. And you began to learn some things about arithmetic. One plus one equals two. Two plus two equals four. And you didn't really understand mathematical or arithmetic theory at that point, but you were just taking that by faith. And so you were beginning to learn those things on the basis of an external authority. And that's what revelation is. God, who is the creator of everything in the universe, is the one who has also informed us of the ultimate nature of reality so that everything flows from that. And therefore, for, as for believers, once we come to understand that truth, our starting point for knowledge then is the Word of God because it is absolute revealed truth. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Yet we, that is, apostles, revealing the Word, do speak wisdom... Wisdom here is not simply doctrine per se, but it is doctrine that is applicable, doctrine that has reached a level of skillful application. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. And the word there, as we have seen many times, is the derivative of teleos, which has to do with spiritual maturity. You see, just as a child in your home has to rely upon your wisdom as you determine the priorities for their life and the rules for their life. Just as you as a parent are the one who determines the course of your child's life, so a mature believer, mature believers understand what the real priorities are in terms of knowledge and in terms of life. Immature believers don't know because they haven't learned enough yet. So mature believers understand the distinction between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint, and that's what Paul has been explaining since the first part of this epistle. He says, We speak wisdom among those who are mature. The immature believers may not always appreciate the finer points of the doctrine that's being taught. That's because they haven't uh, learned enough yet. 
Paul says, but this is a wisdom, however, contrast, not of this age. And this age refers to this period from the fall of Adam to the return of Christ, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. In other words, human viewpoint wisdom, even though it may contain and does contain many elements of truth, the overall framework is not a framework of truth, and there are many elements in it that are false, and this is finite knowledge, and ultimately it's going to pass away. See, it's just like uh, looking at some other religious texts. You can look at the Bhagavad Gita. You can look at the Book of Mormon. You can look at the Quran, and there are many things in those other religious texts that are true. But I'm not going to suggest that you go and look at those to discover truth because included within the truth that's there is much that is false and much that is error. So when you look at the various philosophical systems that have been developed by man, one thing you can say is they always change. You move from uh, the thinking of Socrates to Plato to Aristotle. Each one shifts. You go from uh, the uh, thinking of, of Descartes and rationalism through the thinking of, of empiricism, Bacon, Locke, uh, various shifts till you come to Hume and Hume's skepticism, and then you move from Hume to Kant's reorganization and restructuring of thought. You move through Hegelian idealism. Then you get into uh, modern and postmodern philosophy, and every generation has a new twist, a new wrinkle, and a new structure of explaining reality. But there's no stability there. There's no absolute because man is finite, and there's always something more to learn. There's always a different perspective. There's always a different frame of reference, and so you can't rely upon it. You can't build a structure upon it. It is unstable. The thinking of this age, human viewpoint, reason, is passing away. It is temporal. It is finite. In contrast, Paul says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom. That is, it is un- has much of it is not been revealed beforehand. That's what mystery refers to. He's also using a little play on words here because one of the problems in Corinth that we'll get to in 1 Corinthians 13 especially is that they were too influenced culturally by the what was known as the mystery religion, the mystery cults of the ancient world that that were uh, experience-based and emotion-based, and, and they were rooted in the, the worship of Apollos, Apollo and Dionysius and, and other uh, gods and goddesses in the Greek pantheon. And uh, that, they were called mystery religions, and you had to be initiated into a certain uh, uh, sect, and you had to go through certain initiation rites in order to get into that, uh, that particular group. So Paul is using that as a sort of a play on words here, and he, but he's actually saying we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. It hasn't been revealed. It hasn't, there's not a complete revelation at this point, but it will be revealed. It's hidden wisdom. That is, it's unknown to the unbeliever. The unbeliever does not have, as we'll see in his development in this passage, does not have the equipment necessary to understand uh, divine viewpoint. And that this wisdom, that is the sum total of revelation in the Scripture, God predestined before the ages to our glory. That means that God is a God who is a thinking God and a planning God. And to use something of an anthropomorphism, God in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, laid out a plan. And as part of that plan, they thought through in their omniscience everything that man would need to know in order to live life successfully, and by that I mean to live a life that would glorify him. So God knew in eternity past exactly what he would reveal, and what we have in the Scriptures was is the thinking of God related to mankind from eternity past. Therefore, we can say that it is a complete and a sufficient revelation. That means that we don't need to know anything more. There's, there's no situation in life. There's no problem. There's no difficulty. There's no, nothing that's going to come along in, in, modern, in, in your modern contemporary life that, that you can say, well, you know, the Bible just didn't foresee these kinds of situations. Sure it did. God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows every problem we will ever face. He knows every situation, every social construct that's going to face mankind on into the next 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 1,000 years if the Lord tarries. God is not taken by surprise. He has given us the structure that we need to face and analyze and handle any and every situation in life. 
So God predestined this wisdom from eternity past for our glory, in other words, so that we as believers could advance to spiritual maturity and glorify him. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. In other words, this is something that completely went past not only the Greek philosophers, but also the Jewish religious rulers. For if they had understood it, he said, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had really understood the prophecies of the Old Testament, prophecies like Isaiah 53, prophecies like uh, uh, Isaiah 11, other prophecies, various prophecies, the timing prophecies of Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27, they would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. You would think that if you had a prophecy that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, and they knew that when, when the Magi came to, to uh, Herod and said, where is the Messiah going to be born? Herod consulted the religious leaders, and they knew. They say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, you would think that if the Messiah was coming and you were anticipating the Messiah, that you would have a gang of leaders down there checking out every kid that's born in Bethlehem. But they didn't do that. They didn't have one person stationed in Bethlehem looking for the birth of Jesus of the, of the Messiah. Why? Because they ultimately they were negative. They really didn't care. And that is an indictment on the entire system of Judaism at the time that Jesus Christ came at the first advent. They had ultimately rejected the truth of Scripture. Now we get into the core of this passage, and it's very interesting and important to follow a couple of uh, key words here, specifically the word things. Now it's difficult to follow it through in the English because it's not always translated and it's not always translated correctly, but it is a neuter plural uh, relative pronoun that tracks through this passage. And the reason it's important, I'll go ahead and go to the conclusion. You know, a lot of times when you read a book, this, especially you, you uh, kids in high school or college, uh, it's important sometimes to learn how to read a book. And sometimes when you're reading a tough book, it's important to go read the conclusion before you read the book. Because then you'll have an idea of where the guy's going, where what the argument's leading to, and you'll be able to follow it better. I learned that the hard way after I'd gotten out of college trying to understand a couple of books by Francis Schaeffer. Where we're going with this is look down to verse 16, and I've seen, or verse 15, and I've seen people, theologians and pastors, miss this because, misinterpret this because they failed to follow as they used to do in the old cartoons, follow that bouncing ball. And the bouncing ball is the all things. That's the, the that neuter plural. See, when we get down to verse 15, it says, He who is spiritual judges all things. If you take that verse out of context, what it looks like it's saying is that the person who is spiritual is able to judge everything in life. You want to take that all things and rip it out of context and just apply that to everything in life. You see, that's that same neuter plural that you track all the way through this passage. So the all things in verse 15 is the same as the all things that God has prepared for those who love him back in verse 9. So what we're talking about is the, uh, the, the, corporate, the corporate body of Scripture and all that God has revealed in the 66 books of the Bible. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. So that refers to empirical data. Once you get beyond the universe, what's out there? Once you get beyond the reality of life, what's out there? Where did life come from? It's impossible that life, that human, uh, the immaterial part of man can be generated from matter. Matter doesn't generate immaterial things. So beyond a certain point, uh, empiricism breaks down. Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man. And here we have the use of the word cardia, which doesn't always refer to heart. I wish translators wouldn't do that, but it's so entered into everyday subjective vocabulary, especially among Christians, that we talk about heart without knowing exactly what it means or giving it a very precise definition. And in many cases, in most cases in the, in the Scripture, heart refers to uh, 
the innermost thinking of man. It has a thought connotation. It is not a an emotional connotation. It never refers to the uh, physical organ that pumps blood through the body. Not once in all of Scripture does it refer to that. It always has a reference to the innermost core thinking of a person. So here we read, which is not entered into the heart of man, which means that man on the basis of reason alone, on thinking alone, cannot get to ultimate truth. He can come up with certain things that are true, but at some point it's going to break down. At some point reason can't go any further. All that God has prepared for those who love him. So the all that refers back to the things. It's a neuter plural again. It doesn't look like the same thing in English, but in Greek it's the same word. It's just a simple alpha, which is the neuter plural. And so literally this reads, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, things God has prepared for those who love him. Then we go on to verse 10, for to us... That is, to uh, Paul is speaking as an apostle here. He's not using the us here to refer to us as, as, um, uh, as all believers, although that's secondary in terms of application. But in terms of strict interpretation, to us is a reference to the apostles and prophets who are the ones through whom God has revealed his truth. Prophets in the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament. For to us God revealed them. What's the them? the all things. It is the doctrinal content of Scripture. For to us, that is, the apostles and prophets, God, as the subject of the verb, performs all of the action. The word for revealed here is in the active voice, which means God, as the subject, performs all of the action. That indicates that man does not reveal it to himself. The truth of Scripture is not something that is humanly generated. See, this is the problem with Protestant liberalism and the problem with what came to be known as neo-orthodoxy is they looked at the Scripture as man recording his own spiritual experience, his own spiritual pilgrimage, the things that people learned about God. So it's a progressive discovery on man's part of things he thought about God. That is the exact opposite of what Scripture claims. Scripture says that man has uh, no part in it. It is an acti- actively generated from God. Man is simply the receiver of the act of revelation. So God revealed them, that is the Scriptures, through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit among the members of the Trinity is the divine person who is responsible for the revelation of God's Word and for and Scripture. For the Spirit, that is here, the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the depths of God. Now, the thing that we're going to have to pay attention to here, one, one of the things we will have to pay attention to here is the use of this word spirit because the word spirit is a translation of the Greek word pneuma. And pneuma refer can mean many different things p n e u m a and it can mean breath wind spirit it can refer to thinking it can be a general term for the immaterial part of man it can be used as a synonym for the soul and then it can refer to what we call the human spirit, and that is that in immaterial part that we receive at the point of salvation. So we have to go through here and make a decision. Anybody who translates the Scriptures has to look at this, and every time they find the word pneuma, they have to make a decision from the context as to what it describes, what to, to what, what it refers. And so we get here, and we'll discover in this passage that the word pneuma is used by Paul in at least three different senses. And if you're not careful, you're not comparing Scripture with Scripture to help discern the context, you can easily end up in confusion, which is evident by the way the uh, translators have capitalized S in a couple of places where it should not be capitalized uh, with an S because uh, it's just some sort of knee-jerk tendency from translators to be excessively holy and think that... uh, uh, that spirit is going to refer to the 
Holy Spirit. Now, this describes in verse 10 the basic mechanics of inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture doesn't mean that, like we may talk of Mozart being inspired or we may uh, think about an artist uh, being inspired. That is, the, that is a different idea. The idea of Scripture is that God breathes the Word into man. We get the mechanics in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. There Peter says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, prophecy was the revelation of God to a prophet. Now, the prophet did not understand everything about that information that he was given. He didn't understand when it would be applied, how it would be applied. He did not interpret it. He, did, he just relays it. He just provides the information. God speaks to him, and he uh, relates that information directly without adding anything to it. That's what Peter is saying. He's, he wrote it down without adding his own opinions, his own viewpoint, his own thinking about the subject. He uh, reveals and, and writes down what God has given. Why? Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Now, that is a profound statement. It is a universal statement. His claim is that no prophecy that is in the Old Testament and scripturated in the Old Testament, there's not a single prophecy anywhere in the 39 books of the Old Testament that was ever made by an act of human will. It, mankind did not generate or initiate any prophecy. It all has its origin in God. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from the source of God. God is the source of that knowledge. The Holy Spirit worked on them in the same way. The verb here is a verb that is used to describe the act of wind upon a sailboat. So just as a sailboat is moved across the water by the wind, that is unseen, so the Holy Spirit acted upon the writers of Scripture so that he could guarantee that what they wrote as the end product was without error, but his influence is unseen. Yet he is communicating and communicating absolute truth through the individual. This is clarified are also seen in Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. There we read, all Scripture is inspired by God. And that's the key word there. In the Greek, it's theopneustos, which literally means God-breathed. It's a combination word, a compound word from theos, meaning God, and neustos, meaning breath or wind. It means God-breathed. Literally, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. So our definition of inspiration is that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. You see, this is exactly what we would expect from the kind of God that is revealed in Scripture, not the kind of forced mechanical dictation theory that uh, some religions end up with, because in that case, you, you, you break it all down. It's just a dictation thing, and uh, there is no interaction with human will. There is no in interaction with the individual human personality. But this demonstrates a God that is so great, a God that is so overwhelming in his knowledge and his power that he is able to utilize each individual's differences, their different personalities, their different styles, their different background, that without negating who the writers are as individual persons, God is still able to communicate his absolute truth. See, the, the importance of that is it validates the importance of the individual as an individual. See, that's one of the basic tenets of Judeo-Christian Judeo thought is that individuals matter. You lose that in almost every other religious system. 
And what happens is God over, completely overrules in, in, in revelatory systems like in the Quran or, or in Islam. God just completely negates the individual person. It has no significance and no value. So this just is another point of substantiation to indicate how, how sophisticated the revelation of God is in Scripture and how sophisticated God is that he's far beyond anything that we could ever, ever imagine. He is able to utilize even the chaos and the vagaries of our own individual personalities and still override those differences in such a way that he can control the end product so that it is without error. That is the doctrine of inspiration, and this is the background for understanding our passage in 1 Corinthians 10, that, or 2.10, that God revealed this through the Spirit, for the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the depths of God. Now, in 1 Corinthians 2.11, we go on to read, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the, thought, except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Now, this begins with the particle gar in the Greek, which means that it is an explanation. That's translated that word for in your English Bible. indicates that Paul is explaining the principle that he has just mentioned in verse 10. And that is that the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit knows the deep thoughts of God. Now, what's the significance of that, Paul says? Well, think about the analogy with yourself. Who among men, take any individual human being, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man? And here you have that word pneuma again, and here it's just referring to the immaterial part of, of, of any, any human being. It's not the human spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's just a, a generic term for, for that innermost part of man. It says take any individual. Who knows you? Take yourself. Who knows you better than you yourself? Who knows you better than your own uh, soul? Your, and here it's almost a synonym for soul. Who know, understands your own thinking better than you do? Even so, the analogy is the thoughts of God no one understands better than the Spirit of God. Why? Because in the Christianity, we believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are equal in every attribute. They have equal uh they are equally sovereign. They are equally righteous. They are equally eternal. There never was a time when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did not exist. They are equal in their knowledge. So just as God the Father knows all the knowable, God the Holy Spirit knows all the knowable. God the Holy Spirit knows everything there is to know about God because he is God and he is the one who can reveal the thinking of God. So the point of analogy is that just as you know what's in your own thinking, so the Holy Spirit knows what's in the thinking of God because he is full deity. Then verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world. Now here we use the word pneuma in a, even a third sense, and this is the attitude or the thinking of the world. See, it, it shifts its meaning again. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. This is uh, verse 12, and this is an important phrase because Paul changes the way he expresses this at this point. Everywhere else in this passage, three other times, we have the expression with the definite article to, pneuma, Theu. Now, the ending here, this O-U ending, is a genitival ending. This is your neuter genitive ending. And it's um, translated, the Spirit of God. And here it's a genitive of source or perhaps a genitive of relationship. The Spirit of God. And so just by using this genitive here, you get the idea of source or relationship. Problem is that uh, this, this phrase of is awfully vague in English. 
You always run into this with teaching first-year Greek students because they want to translate every genitive with an of because that's the simple way to do it, and it gets the basic sense, but it doesn't catch the real uh, profound sense. So it's the spirit who is from God, literally. If it's source, it's the spirit who is from God. So the genitive itself makes the point that the Holy Spirit derives from God himself. You don't need to add a preposition to it in order to clarify the idea of source. But all of a sudden, in verse 12, when Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, which is tanuma tu, excuse me, this should be just tanuma, tanuma tu cosmu. In other words, he doesn't use a preposition there. Then when he shifts and says, We have received the spirit who is from God, all of a sudden he inserts the preposition ek, E-K, which means, uh, which is a preposition indicating source or origin. Now, why is it? You know, this is why you have to observe. If every word in Scripture is inspired by God, in fact, Jesus said that it is inspired down to the point of every jot or tittle. That is the minutia of the text because a, a, a jot or tittle makes a difference between uh, two words. For example, the difference between... Um, uh, the word, let's say, um, the word pat and the word bat is this the, the lower part of the B. That's equivalent to a tittle. So it, just one little mark can completely change the entire meaning of a, change the word and change the entire meaning of the word. So when there are these little insertions here, like a preposition, you know, our radar ought to go go off, and we ought to stop and say, well, why did Paul suddenly change that? He doesn't need to add that in order to emphasize the Holy Spirit. And this is the only time in four uses of the phrase that he inserts this preposition. And it should tell us that there's a reason for the insertion of that because he is not known, in the phrase that includes ek, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit which everywhere else in Scripture is, when it's referred to this way, is referred to by the phrase tanuma tutheu. Only here do we have this phrase with ek there, which indicates something different. This is not talking about the Holy Spirit. This is talking about another spirit that comes from God. And that is the spirit that we receive at the point of regeneration. At the point of regeneration, we are made spiritually alive at that instant that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you you are quickened the scripture says you are made alive together with him Titus 3 5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit so we receive something new at the point of salvation and that is this thing called the human spirit now, let's look at a diagram. I'm going to skip ahead here a minute. Uh, I'm not going to skip ahead. It's going to be, uh, I've got the slides out of order, so it's going to be too much. We'll come back and look at it and wrap up. Now, verse 12 says, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. This is the human spirit, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now, another reason we know that this is the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit, is the verse that he, Paul is really explaining here is back is the quote back in verse 9, which is a quote from an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 64.4. And in Isaiah 64.4, he's talking to revelation for Old Testament believers. Now, Old Testament believers did not receive the Holy Spirit. Only a few did. The leaders of the theocratic kingdom, Saul, David, priests, prophets, but the average believer did not receive the Holy Spirit. Less than 100 people in the Old Testament received the Holy Spirit. And it was always for purposes related to leadership in the kingdom of Israel or the giving of divine or reception of divine revelation. So if this is the Holy Spirit, then this would mean that nobody in the Old Testament could ever understand divine revelation. Because if this is the Holy Spirit here, the point that Paul is making is that it's the reception of this Spirit that enables people to understand revelation. 
If it's Holy Spirit, then Old Testament believers could not have understood Old Testament revelation. So it has to be the reception of something that is true for believers in the Old Testament as well as believers in the New Testament, and that can only be the human spirit, which we get at regeneration. So human spirit enables the believer then to understand what God has revealed and what God has communicated. Then we come to verse 13. Paul says, which things, that is the uh, doctrines revealed in Scripture, the words of Scripture itself, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. And then we have a very uh, interesting and complex phrase combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, which in the New American Standard is, you notice the word thoughts and words are in italics. And that is because in the Greek what you have is simply the dative pneumatic hoist with the accusative pneumatica. And uh, it, that would really translate spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. And the best way to take this is that the neuter plural uh, instrumental case of the first word has to do with ideas as a neuter plural. And then the, so it's combining spiritual ideas with spiritual words. And that's the way that thought takes place is ideas produce words. Words are important. Each word expresses specific ideas. You change the word, even if it's a synonym, it changes the basic nature of the, of the, uh, of the idea. So we can't say that just ideas of Scripture are are inspired. It is the very words that are inspired because just a small shift in the words changes the nature of the idea. Then we have a contrast in verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Literally, it is the verb decamai, which means to receive. And here it has the connotation of understanding. The natural man does not accept or understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. A very strong statement using the uh, negative statement, udunatai, he is not able to understand it. It's a categorical statement because they are spiritually appraised. Now, let's stop a minute and try to understand a few words here. What is a natural man? This is the Greek word psukikos, based on the word suke or soul, uh, the same root as we have in psychology or psychiatry. This then literally would be the soulish man does not accept or receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now, what are the things? The things are the, that which has been revealed in Scripture. It's the things that God has prepared for those who love him back in um, verse 9. It is the things that the Spirit searches in verse 10. It is uh, the things that uh, Paul refers to in verse 11. What man knows the things of a man, or no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So the things here is that which is revealed. Now we have another usage of this word, sukikos, over in Jude 19, but it's almost always badly translated in any of your translations. Here, in this is the New American Standard up on the screen. It's the word translated worldly-minded. But you see the Greek word for worldly is cosmos. So it does, it's not cosmos doesn't have anything to do with psukikos. These are the ones, it's referring to unbelievers in the context of Jude 19. These are the ones who cause divisions, psukikos. Now, Two things that are problematic in that Jude 19 verse. First of all, it uses the word sukikos, which is soulish, not worldly-minded. Secondly, the translators make an interpretive decision to capitalize spirit. Now, if you look at it in the Greek, it literally says sukikos, not having a spirit. Sukikos, not having a spirit. Now, you have to decide, is this going to be a capital S or a small s? Holy Spirit or human spirit? Well, it's talking about unbelievers. It could be either one. But see, it's an appositional phrase. That means it, the, the, the phrase not having spirit is explaining the noun in front of it. Since the noun in front of it is sukikos related to soul, and it's soulish, not having a spirit, that defines the term, that the soulish person does not have uh, a spirit. Well, let me 
skip through this slide. Well, just take a minute here. There we go. We'll go down to Suki Kos has to do with Solish. The phrase devoid of the spirit, this puts it in better perspective for you, means not having a spirit. And that's the same thing that we have back in 14. So Sukikos in verse 14 indicates soulish. The soulish man who doesn't have a spirit cannot, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now let me skip through here. This gives us a picture of the makeup of the human being. The square represents a human body. In that human body, the animating principle is the soul. The soul is made up of our self-consciousness, mentality, volition, and conscience. This is how every person is born. They are born spiritually dead. They do not have a human spirit. It's not that they that it's inactive. See, that's the importance of Jude 19, is Jude 19 says that they're soulish not having a spirit. Now, Adam, when Adam was created, he had a human spirit. When he ate of the fruit and died spiritually, that human spirit was in Adam was rendered inactive. But for us, we are just born without that human spirit. So that's why we can say that we're born not having this human spirit. And then at the point of salvation and regeneration, we receive a human spirit. That is the point of regeneration. Now, the human spirit is that which enables the different parts of the soul to relate to God, to understand divine truth. Now, you don't learn divine truth with your human spirit. You do not store divine truth in your human spirit. That's a function of the mentality of the soul and the memory component of mentality. The human spirit simply enables your mentality, your volition, your conscious, and your self-consciousness to relate to God. And uh, you will often hear people talking about, well, my spirit, uh, I had a check in my spirit, or my spirit was telling me, or I'm learning this in my spirit, man. And you will always hear that, that kind of verbiage from somebody who has been grossly mistaught from some kind of Pentecostal or charismatic background. And it's, it's Gnostic terminology. And it, and it didn't used to be in... Uh, charismatic thought until they got into a lot of uh, new thought mysticism starting back in the late 30s as a result of uh, the teaching of uh, E.W. Kenyon and, uh, and uh, many others. But that's, uh, that's a problem, so watch that kind of verbiage. We receive a human spirit that is ours at the point of salvation. The human spirit doesn't learn, but it enables the mentality to learn. The human spirit doesn't store truth, but it enables the mentality to store truth. The human spirit is simply the capacity that allows our the, the parts of our soul to properly relate to God and understand divine truth. We know that man is made up of these three parts because of verses like Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. So here it makes a distinction between the two. But the two are so closely intertwined and interconnected that at times the Bible may talk about the soul and have both in view or the spirit and have both in view. That's why some writers and some theologians have made the mistake of saying, well, these words are just synonyms. But I think it's clear from Hebrews 4.12 and from 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that the Scripture clearly makes a distinction. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23 we read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Here we have those three parts. This is called trichotomy. Trichotomy that we are made that the believer is composed of three parts: spirit, soul, and body. The unbeliever is composed of two parts: the um, human, uh, the human soul, and the physical body. Now, this explains the dynamics of learning, learning the word. The pastor teacher teaches. Through the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is made understandable. I think this is 
then we have to decide whether or not we're going to believe it. When we accept that doctrine is true, it becomes gnosis, and then it is in, the Holy Spirit enters it into that cardia, the innermost part of our thinking, as epinosis, and that is usable doctrine. So what we have here in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14, is a, the dynamics of how we learn that it is based on it is based on this ability that God gives us through the human spirit to learn the Word, but it is activated through the filling of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll look at verses 15 and 16 because that sets us up for being able to understand the contrast between spiritual and carnal in chapter 3. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original text, no verse divisions. It just went directly from verse 16 into verse 1. And unfortunately, because of the insertion of a chapter division there, it makes it appear to us as if Paul is changing the subject. But he's going to flow right out of this into a discussion of the difference between carnal and spiritual believers. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have learned and to apply them to our own thinking and application. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone, simply to trust him as your Savior. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins and the sins of the entire world. The issue, therefore, is not your sin. The issue is not your failure. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. Are you willing to rely upon his work completely for your salvation? Father, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.